May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. I just got back two weeks ago from my 50th high school reunion, which makes me feel incredibly old and yet strangely very new and starting out afresh. I'm still working out what that means. I think I'll be unpacking everything that happened to me there for a long time. But in the meantime, the way these things do when something big happens in your life, I find that almost everything I see in here grabs me and resonates with what I experienced there. For example, Richard's preaching last week on the city of God as described in the book of Revelation. Almost everything in his sermon resonated deeply with me, beginning with the quirky fact that we actually referred to our school, C.E. Bird High, at that time the biggest high school in the state of Louisiana, as the city of Bird. It's still called that. The principal is the mayor, and so on. Until I went back to Shreveport, the idea that the city of Bird, with its obsession with school spirit and AAA sports, might bear any resemblance to the city of God would have seemed outrageous. Now, I'm not so sure. From the moment I got there and felt the soft, warm air on my skin, I could sense myself opening to something new and unpredictable. I began to take in on some level that I was going to be part of something much bigger than I am, something I had held lightly and taken for granted. Not only the incredible variety of the people who showed up from every walk of life and from one end of the economic ladder to the other, but something deeper something that held us together in spite of all the things I'd loved about my upbringing but had come to feel ashamed of, the moral blindness of the segregated world I'd grown up in, the general backwardness of the South. On the second morning of our reunion, about 100 of us, out of the 200 or so who'd showed up from a class of nearly 700, we gathered together for a memorial service for our classmates who had died. There was a shocking number of them. And the president of our class gave a thoughtful talk on where we'd started out and how far we had come. As he put it, when we graduated in June of 1960, full of optimism and ambition, imagining clear sailing, we could have had no way of knowing that what lay ahead of us was the decade of the 60s with the Vietnam War, the assassination of our president and Martin Luther King, the civil rights movement, the sexual revolution, and on and on. We were silent and respectful, remembering the people we had been all those years ago. Then we walked across the street to the high school itself. With the exception of a couple of new additions at the rear, the building itself was almost uncannily unchanged. A great big handsome red brick building with flags flying. It was a high school from central <coughs> casting. 
I had passed it a thousand times since the day I'd graduated, but I'd never been back inside. From the minute I walked up the steps through the big doors at the side into the vast corridors beyond, everything was exactly the same. The same classrooms. They've even kept the old blackboards in some of them, just as historical objects alongside the computer screens. The same office where we'd waited in line to get our classes changed. The same framed pictures of the presidents of the student body. Only I'm glad to say that now quite a few of the faces are black. I wandered the halls as if in a trance, having known them over the years as the blueprint of a recurring dream. The same four floors of identical corridors, the same stairwells leading infinitely up and down. Through it all, I was aware of something vague but immense that was gathered around me. And it had to do not only with the pull of memory, but with some indefinable other, something I was beginning to recognize as important and good. Mircea Eliad, the famous historian of religion, wrote this about what I believe I was experiencing. He calls it sacred time. Sacred time is unbroken. You return to events and places only to find that you are taking up where you left off. The in-between time has been folded together. Not only does one say, I've been here before, but one realizes that something has been kept in trust for one. There is a hidden continuity at work. This quote had come up on my computer sometime during the first few days after I got back, and once again, it seemed meant for me. I thought about the fantastic passage from the book of Revelation and the one we read today that continues it. Just as our own dreams are made up of real and familiar images but out of place, juxtaposed differently, so after experiencing this great religious vision, we are left with a sense of, what was that? Is it a description of heaven, as many people believe? And if so, what are we supposed to do with it? Is it just a beautiful and somewhat alarming dream, this holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven with its crystal river and its leaves that are for the healing of the nations? Or is there something in it that is meant to be of use to us, a guide for us in our daily, tangible lives. The image of the city of Bird kept coming back to me. Could this four-square brick building, this hive of activity, of adolescent joys and miseries, be part of that greater city, connected in some way? Charles Williams, the Anglican novelist and poet, believed in what he called the city, a concept that lies under all aspects of reality for him and permeates his complex plots. For Williams, the city means, and I don't quite know how to explain it, but it's sort of a interpenetration of heaven and earth, of the realm of God, which Williams prefers to call 
the mercy or the omnipotence and refers to human beings as living their lives under the mercy or under the omnipotence, and the realm of man, these two being intimately connected with each other, that we can move back and forth between the two and catch a glimpse sometimes of that other reality. <coughs> it's a space, an actual space like this one, and a time, the future, the past, and the present in which they meet, where it is possible to be our best. A place in time both specific, such as here this morning, and infinite, where, as one of his readers put it, to serve God is not duty, but bliss. Now, I have to say that the characters in his books are often very strange and do strange things. But however outlandish the happenings in the novels may be, they are there to demonstrate a simple but indispensable fact, the goodness and trustworthiness of the ordinary. For Williams, as for Jesus, in whom he bases all his belief and trust, all human life is laden with significance. All of it has beauty and value. It's in the juxtaposition of these ordinary lives and events, how they play out with each other under the omnipotence, that the connections between the city of God and the city of man keep making themselves felt. Many of us were here on Friday afternoon for the funeral of Connie Ryder, who was, I think those who know her can agree, a most particular person. There was no one else quite like her, or like any of the men, women, and children who have passed through this place. Charles Williams would say about Connie or about people you and I have loved who are no longer visibly with us, that they and the realm in which they exist is not so far away. In fact, not far away at all. That what we, that's what we mean by the communion of saints that phrase we use in the creed every week. We live and move in the presence of those who have gone before us and of those who are still to come because we are all made one in God. We live in the city together and our lives are connected by everything we share. When I was in Shreveport on the second day of our reunion, a big group of women who feared we otherwise wouldn't have a chance to talk went out to lunch together. And during that crowded but really fun and relaxed time, I found myself laughing and talking with a woman, a girl, whom I hadn't really known well back in the day but had always admired. I was asking her, why is it that I don't laugh the way I used to? When did I get to be so serious? When I was a teenager, or even through college, I used to laugh and giggle with my girlfriends until my stomach ached all the time about absolutely nothing. What happened to that 19-year-old girl? My friend answered simply, life happened. Not anything wrong or disappointing, in fact, rich and rewarding, but simply that in growing up, 
The world opened us up to responsibility and risk, the responsibility of work and marriage and children, the risk of love. Later, in the plane flying back to San Francisco, I read in the little booklet that each of our classmates had submitted a little essay about their lives to, that one of the two sons of my classmate, this woman who was calm and smiling, had committed suicide. Another new friend I met there, a kindly, somewhat diffident man whose essay spoke of gratitude in the course of a happy, if irregular, life for a forgiving wife and wonderful children. And in in, in, he had sent out an email to the whole class about 24 hours before we were supposed to get there saying that he was gay. It simply wouldn't work anymore, keeping secrets and holding on to the wounds and failures of a lifetime. Maybe that was what made the time we spent together so strange and wonderful. We all lived in different places. We all had aspects of ourselves we'd always chosen to present to others. But somehow, it didn't seem to matter anymore. We were all of us both ordinary and extraordinary, but mostly, as it turned out, simply ready to experience things in a different light. See, the Lord God in John's great revelation proclaims, I am making all things new. Last night, this space echoed and was filled with all manner of the most beautiful music. But at the same time, the concert and the experience of those who were listening to it was an interconnection between the original creators of the music, Beethoven and Brahms and Gershwin and Poulenc, and those individual performers who through their particular gifts made the experience unique. At the end of months of planning and input from all sorts and conditions of women and men, we got dressed up and stood and ate and drank and laughed together and listened to that beautiful music to raise money for a new roof, surely amongst the most concrete and undreamlike things imaginable. And yet generations of people, in particular the children who will gather under that roof, will learn that indeed, just as the vision of Revelation claims, God does make God's home amongst mortals. My dear friends, I urge you to look around you and to give thanks for this community to which, under the mercy, you have been invited by the Holy Spirit of God. It is a community with no entry requirements except the desire to be here, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, to gather with other human creatures to deepen our faith and strengthen our moral lives to obey that inner longing that draws us ever closer to the heart of God. It is an invitation that is freely offered and freely given. Surely, our response can only be to go out from this place into the world that is in such desperate need of just this same community 
and extend the invitation to behold and live into the city of God. This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at oursaviourmv.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley dot O-R-G. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to greet you in person very soon.